0: I'm completely convinced that these things are real in the simple sense that they happen. What they mean is it's another question.
1: Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Brit Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things but how do you learn about everything? The answer, make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. According to the United States UFO Center, last year there were 7,200 reports of unidentified flying objects in this country, which is over 1,000 more sightings than in 2019. You may have also seen recent news of a report that the government and military have recently released. After 17 years, there is now public confirmation and documentation of many UFO sightings. But out of 144 confirmed events and encounters, only one could be explained. The rest remain a mystery. So why is this happening so much more frequently than before? And what could these objects be? Luckily, we have an expert with us who studies the paranormal, UFOs, and mysticism for a living. Today, we're talking with Professor Jeffrey Kripal, who is the J. Newton Razor Professor of Religion and Associate Dean of Humanities at Rice University. He's also one of our nation's foremost experts in UFOs and the paranormal, who has spent decades studying the topic. So whether you're a skeptic or a believer, and by the way, I'm somewhere in between, today we'll dive into the facts around UFOs and the paranormal and the questions left to be answered welcome to the show jeff i have so many questions obviously i think we all do um, but i want to actually roll it back to how did you get so interested in this topic where did this come from did you have a sighting when you were eight years old or what, what what's going on here
0: well so apparently i did have a sighting when i was five but I don't remember it. My my mother my mother describes it, but I, I have literally zero memory of it. I work in something called the history of religions, which most people would think of as comparative religion. And I had really no interest in this topic, um, certainly in graduate school or early in my career. I work actually on uh, male sexual orientation and ecstatic religious experience. So those were my interests.
1: Wow. That's another podcast episode, by the way. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I have a lot to say there, as you might imagine. Yeah. Um, but um, somewhere around 04, 05, I was actually finishing up a big history of the Eslin Institute in Big Sur, California. And I was just talking to everyone. I was just being, being a person. And I was listening to stories I knew could not have happened, um, but that I knew happened uh, because I trusted these people. I knew these people. And I I knew that what they were telling me was the best approximation of what actually happened. And I was just, I was kind of stunned by it. And I was stunned by it because I had been trained as a scholar to basically ignore all of these anomalous or miraculous or or paranormal experiences. We tend to treat them in my world as representations or as power grabs or as legends, as fictions but we don't take them as something that might actually happen. And I was beginning to realize that they actually happen and that this has tremendous implications for how we think about ourselves and certainly how we think about religion. So I spent from about '05 really till today trying to rethink the study of religion, but also the humanities in general, Rethink them around. Well, what ha- what ha- what happens to our our models if these things really happen? I mean, obviously we have to shift. So you know, to answer your question briefly, what really changed me was people. I listened to people and I believed them, and I've been listening to people ever since, and I still believe them. Which doesn't mean I believe the literal stories that they're telling me or the interpretations that are occurring. We'll get into that, but I I do believe I'm completely convinced that these things are real in the simple sense that they happen. What they mean is is another, is another question, but that's how I always begin such a conversation is just with the insistence that they happen, uh, not what they mean.
1: And I know that my lead up was all about UFOs, which I definitely want to talk about, but it's also about the paranormal and what you describe as mysticism or sort of these unexplainable events Can you give us a sense of what that means? I think sometimes when I say paranormal or anyone says it, you think ghosts and spirits, but is it more than just that?
0: It's way more than that. Um, First of all, if I can just be a professor for a moment, the word paranormal is actually French, paranormal. It was coined in 1903 by a, a lawyer who was also a psychological researcher, and it was coined probably after the English supernormal. And both words were trying to get away from the supernatural, which always implies some external agency, some transcendent God that's acting in the natural world. Where the supernormal and the the paranormal were very much arguing that, no, these are actually aspects of our natural world. And we simply don't have the science yet to understand what's going on. So the word paranormal, like the word psychical, by the way, like the word supernormal, they're all coined by scientists and really, really smart people at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. It's only over the course of the 20th century that they enter popular culture and they end up in bookstores in your horror section. And what most people don't know about the UFO topic is that it cannot be slotted into a simple technological question or what I call a nuts and bolts uh, explanation. You know, we're not talking about spacecraft that you can walk up and kick the tires. And when these things interact with human beings, this human interface results in all kinds of paranormal effects. So things like precognitive ability, uh, telepathic experiences, apparitions, cryptids or, or monsters. I mean, all kinds of very strange things happen around UFO sightings. So whatever these things are, they're interacting with human beings and they're triggering the religious imagination, and people are seeing things, and people are are able to do new things. So it's all related, Britt. I mean, if there's one thing I could get your audience to think about is that it's all connected. There are no divisions here. Ghosts, by the way, and UFOs, I'm sorry to tell you, are very much related. (laughs) Believe it or not, dead people actually often show up in uh, abduction narratives. Mm. So aliens and dead people... Go together in ways that we do not understand. I'm not claiming any understanding here. I'm just telling you what people report.
1: Hmm. So I want to come back to all of that because I think it's so fascinating to think that if I'm hearing you right, our brains are interpreting something that we're seeing or hearing in and around all of these sightings and encounters with not just UFOs, but potentially ghosts and other strange, mysterious instances. On the UFO front, um, you once quoted, strange things have been coming from the sky and doing weird things to people for as long as we can see back. (laughs) So I mentioned how there's more and more of these sightings and this is like happening more than normal and the government just started talking about it. But what is the history of like how and when we started seeing objects in the sky?
0: (laughs) I mean, that's history. This is a universal global phenomena, and it's occurring as far back as we can see. Um, but that does not mean, and this is where it's a little tricky, Britt, that does not mean I think all of the ancient religions are about UFOs. I I think the UFO is our modern mythology. And I think it's a mistake to just assume we've got it right now, and now we can just shove it into ancient history and explain all those religious events as people encountering ancient astronauts or something i don't believe that for a second i think our mythology is as mythological as theirs was and so i'm trying to i'm trying to destabilize people's certainty here i think these things have always been appearing but they've been triggering the human brain and body to essentially project a movie and that movie's been religious for most of human history and now it's more sci-fi but it's still a movie we're still watching
1: So uh, explain, though, what that means, because, okay, so for those that might not be religious, like what were the things people back in the day, (laughs) way, way, way back in the day, used to see in the sky? And how do you say that that manifests?
0: They saw orbs. They saw spinning disks. They saw vehicles of various kinds. They even called them vehicles. But they tended to frame them in religious terms because that was the coda or that was the that was the language of the, of the time. Just go read Ezekiel 1 and 2 and tell me that that's not a UFO. I mean, it's a UFO, but it, it's coded in this ancient Israelite symbolic language, which is very bizarre, by the way, even by ancient biblical standards. But clearly, Ezekiel's seeing something and encountering something, and he even gets abducted, by the way, in those first two chapters. I'm not saying that there's something objectively experienced and then it's interpreted. I'm saying, no, the experience itself is already interpreted by whatever the culture is. And so today, people see things from outer space, and they talk about ETs because that's what the culture tells them.
1: Well, and I once heard that over history, if you um ask people to describe what an alien looks like they basically reference whatever the current version of the media portraying an alien looks like at the time so like you know when i was young i remember them being like green <laughs> and like big eyeballs and maybe now i think they're white kind of or you know they're they, to your point they're much more sci- sci-fi um even ufo's what ufo's look like have sort of changed in appearance based on popular culture, movies, etc., And so is there a, the belief that we are just pretending in our minds what we're seeing because we're so clued into movies and pop culture?
0: No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying these are hallucinations or these are seeing things that aren't really there. What I'm saying is that the human organism is so baffled and often so terrified by what it's perceiving that it's throwing up a kind of screen memory or a kind of movie, and it's saying, "Oh, this is what I'm encountering right now when in fact they're not, they're encountering something extremely alien, probably too alien to translate into human language or or human images, but we you know people do their best, and so for example, in a lot of abduction stories, the person actually sees a raccoon or sees a deer, something with big eyes, it can't process. The, the alien presence, so it translates it immediately into something it can process and perhaps isn't so scary. And it's not clear to me, by the way, that these things are scary. You know, fear is a human response. We're the ones who are terrified. It's not at all clear that the entity is a threat, mm-hmm. frankly. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to get us to own our own constructions and our own interpretations, which are largely unconscious, I talk to people from a broad spectrum of cultures and religions and experiences. They're all seeing different things, (laughs) Um, but they're all having really similar experiences. So how do you explain those differences and how do you explain those similarities? Well, you basically have to develop some kind of model like I'm trying to explain to you right now. Mm -hmm. And you have to tell people, you know, what you're experiencing isn't what's there. That is what you're seeing. That is what you're experiencing. I get that.
1: Wow. That's a deep. That's a deep statement. Do you have any specific stories that you've found really enlightening in all of your research?
0: Yeah. When I was younger and naive, um, I thought, you know, someone somewhere had the answer and I just had to read enough books or talk to enough people and I would somehow find the answer to human existence that it's out there and, and I just have to find it. I don't, I don't believe that mm-hmm. anymore. I, I don't think anybody has the answer. And when I talk to experiencers, so people say who have had an out-of-body experience, had a near-death experience, seen a UFO, been on board a craft, the story always gets weirder. It never makes more sense. And the more that person trusts you or trusts me in this situation, the more the story gets stranger. So the first the first version of the story I always hear, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, that's not the full story. That it's mm. it's weirder than this. And sure enough, you know, once they trust me and they say, well, you know, there was also this, and I'm I'm like, okay, and, and then there was this, and it never makes rational sense. And so that's the first thing I want to say is if you're looking for some kind of rational explanation, don't don't talk to experiencers because you're not mm. going to get one. Um, the other story I always tell, which I think is so instructive. Uh, actually happened at and We had Whitley Strieber in the room. Whitley is a, a science fiction writer who wrote a nonfiction book called Communion in 1987 about his own abduction experience and then had a series of other abductions. And I know Whitley extremely well. And we were pushing Whitley in the room and we were like, doesn't your abduction experience in 87, it, doesn't it just rely on the bad science fiction movies you saw as a kid in the 50s and 60s and your earlier horror writing? And Willie's answer was, was so good. Uh, and I think spot on. He basically said, of course, what I was seeing was influenced by the science fiction movies I saw as a kid in the 50s and 60s, of course. But something was there. And it was, my mind was translating it into these images. He said, so what we need to do now is make better science fiction movies. And I thought that was so brilliant because there's no outside to it, right? It's not like you can get outside the experience and say, there's there's an objective event there and this is what it really is. It's like, no, we're inside the story that we're telling and our job here isn't to step outside the story. It's to tell a better story so that people can have better experiences in the future. And yes, there's something really happening here, but it's always going to get translated into the stories and rituals and religions that we we already uh, inhabit or or are or the secular stories. And the secular stories are just as mythological as the as the religious stories. I mean, they're just they they require belief essentially. So I don't think we can get out of these stories, but I think we can change them. And I and I think we we are changing them very gradually actually.
1: What do you mean by change them?
0: So if you look at virtually every UFO movie of the last 40 or 50 years, they're all defined by what I call a Cold War mythology. There is an external alien, and it is invading our airspace or our nation state or our holy nation or whatever it is. There's always an outsider, there's always an alien, and it's a threat to us. So you have this us versus them kind of story and so you get all these stories with you know men punching out aliens and airplanes shooting and blowing up stuff and it's very it's very military it's very cold war-ish we need to understand this presence and we need to learn how to use our psychical or paranormal gifts that are being activated by this 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 alien presence that's a different story that's a totally different story And this is why it's so hard to think about, Britt, because all of our language and all of our thought has evolved to convince us that we're some kind of invisible entity in a brain and a body looking out onto the, the objective physical world. And I think what these phenomena are trying to tell us is, it just ain't so. It's mm-hmm. it, it's much weirder than that. You, you are embedded in a, a large cosmos and your subjective state or your consciousness is actually not in your body. It's Your body is in it, you know, to flip it around. That to me is the ultimate message of this stuff. And that's essentially a spiritual message or or a philosophical message. It's not a technological one. And that's what I've been trying to say. Different people are more sensitive to things in the environment than other people. So some people, mm-hmm. when there's like a UFO sighting, some people see it. Some people don't. Um, mm-hmm. People see different things. So, again, it's it's as much a function of the medium of the human being as it is the, the, the reality that's out there, as it were.
1: So I think that's really interesting. I love that. That's what I was trying to get at, because I think, uh, you know, let's take my husband, for example, versus me. Like, he can hear the tiniest sound He feels when things are happening. Last night we were lying in bed and he was like, do you hear that buzzing? It's so loud. And I was like, no, what are you talking about? And he's like, it's driving me crazy. It's giving me a headache. How do you not hear this? And I have no idea what he's talking about. I I literally think we just have a different chip in our brain where he can sense those things and I can't. So I'm assuming that means that like, he is gonna see a UFO in his lifetime and I won't. But to your point, it's that like, he is genetically probably predisposed to sensing these things, and I'm not, right?
0: But And I will tell you, though, also, Brett, this, and this is a, a poignant kind of truth, the role of trauma in paranormal phenomena is huge. And people who have been traumatized in various ways are often much more sensitive and open paranormal events than people who have not been traumatized.
1: By any sort of trauma in their lifetime or the trauma of the event itself?
0: Well, so for example, take near-death experiences. By definition, it's a traumatic event. You know, the person's virtually di- physically dying and it takes that physical trauma to let in the light, as it were. The, the person has, has spent his or her own whole life keeping the light out. But now it's the light's going to pour in because there's a death process happening. Sometimes people are hit on the head. um, They jump into a pool or they get mugged or they're in a car accident. They have some physical extreme head injury and they develop extraordinary abilities out of nowhere. You know, there's Mm. something about shutting down ordinary cognitive processes that allow these abilities to appear.
1: What about trauma and the emotional sense? If someone has had bouts of depression or even schizophrenia or anything on the mental health spectrum, does that lead them to be more sensitive?
0: I, I personally think so. Unfortunately, what happens is that a lot of people will, if someone, say, in a mental hospital or someone who's schizophrenic, starts to read one's mind or starts to report paranormal experiences, they'll say, oh, it's part of the mental illness. The paranormal is simply a symptom of some kind of mental illness. And I'm like, whoa, hold off. It might be that the paranormal phenomena is an expression of the mental breakdown, for sure. But that doesn't mean it itself is part of the illness. It's the same with psychedelics, by the way. You know, people experience becoming God, by the way, on some really powerful psychedelic molecules. Does that mean they're just tripping and it's an illusion? Or does it mean that the molecule has shut down their body and brain and this cosmic sense of mind has rushed in and they can now finally identify with it? I suspect it's the latter. So, you know, to put things philosophically, I really really adopt something called the filter thesis. And that's essentially that the brain does not produce consciousness it filters it and reduces it. And so what the body and the brain, they're more like a smartphone, you know? They're they are picking up this cosmic Wi-Fi and they're translating it into Brit or they're translating into Jeff, but it's actually cosmic. And when Brit or Jeff are suppressed in a trauma or an accident or something, this cosmic Wi-Fi can come back and show itself. Unfortunately... <laughs> Sometimes Jeff disappears and doesn't come back. And so there's nobody to report the experience. But most all of the NDE literature is because we've made technological advances and we can pull people back now from the death process, you see.
1: How do you pull them back?
0: If you're dying in a modern hospital, biomedical technology can bring you back from the death process very often and allow you to survive that heart attack. Or that stroke, or whatever you're having on the on the table, um, in in a world before 1960, say you're uh, you're dead, you know that you're not coming back. You are okay. not coming that back that far into the death process. Where today we we can bring people back, and so this is why we're seeing, I think, more near death experience stories.
1: Ah, that's interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I watched um, a series on Netflix, I think, of near-death experiences. And are those like similar to the stories you hear of of people that have survived death?
0: Absolutely. But, you know, NDEs and also children who remember previous lives, all of those those stories presume trauma. They presume death or, or getting very close to death. I mean, the children who remember previous lives, that presumes death, by the way. And what we know from those stories is most of the previous lives they describe end traumatically and suddenly um, people people don't report happy slow <laughs> deaths i don 't have these experiences. People ask me that all the time i 'm like uh no i 'm kind of a dullard when it comes to this but but that doesn't mean other people don't and that we can't we can't imagine with Imagine what a world would look like if we took them seriously.
1: Well, so what should we do? I mean, what, and if you could snap your fingers, like what kinds of answers would you have? And how would the world respond to all of this paranormal discussion that's out there?
0: Okay, so I do, I do have a snap my finger answer. It, it's going to sound a bit nerdy, but, but it makes a lot of sense, I think. You know, the reason we have Zoom right now or the reason we have cell phones or the reason we have modern medicine or the reason we have cosmology or physics is because we've invested billions and billions of dollars over many generations in trying to ask these questions and get answers. And guess what? We've got answers and we've come a long ways. But we've only come a long ways because of literally hundreds of thousands of people spending their lives on this and getting paid to do it, by the way, and creating an intergenerational process. We have nothing like that in the paranormal world. Basically, what you have are a few independent researchers who are brave or wealthy enough to do this on their own. And they do it for one life and they they die and that's it. Universities will not invest in this uh, government will not in- government will invest in this by the way, but always secretly. Um, we have not as a culture decided that this is a really important set of questions, and by that I mean what is consciousness, how does it relate to the physical world, and what happens to us when we die? We cannot ask those questions in any disciplined professional way. We go to our religions or or we go to the bookstore, but we don't invest as a culture in that. And I think that's what it's gonna take. It's frankly gonna take billions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of people saying enough, you know enough of this why don't people step up and and approach universities and government and public institutions and say we really want to understand this you know let's let's do this. i mean we could do it Brit.
1: i think there's such a stigma against being someone that believes in any of this paranormal stuff you can't be like standing on a street corner saying like fund paranormal research
0: <laughs> but here's the thing here's the strange thing first of all you're absolutely correct it gets tabooed from both the religious side and the scientific side. It's not one or the other. It, it gets beat up on both sides. But here's the thing. If you turn on Netflix or Amazon Prime or any of these streaming services, guess what all the shows, guess what half the shows are about? This. Oh, yeah. They're about oh, this. And the reason they're about this is because that's what people are interested in. They're fascinated by it. But again, as a culture, we've decided that this is about entertainment and it shouldn't be about science or, or religion. And I think that's a shame. I, I mean, I love entertainment. I'm not, I'm not bashing the filmmakers. I'm just saying, wow, it should be about our science. It should be about our religion. It should be about everything because it's about mm-hmm. our place in the cosmos. Really, at the end of the day, that's what this is mm-hmm. about. Right. And the reasons the religions don't like it is they think they have the answer to that. Um, question, what is our place in the cosmos? They'll tell you the answers. Um, but guess what? They don't have the answers. Um, trust me, they don't. Mm-hmm. They have their answers. And here's the thing about the scientists, whom I, many of whom I know, they're in the closet, Brit. They're, they're not actually naysayers. Mm-hmm. They're, mm-hmm. they're naysayers in public, but in private, they're like, yeah, this is happening.
1: Well, there's like there's stuff that they can't explain, which as a scientist, you get so frustrated by and You're like, well, I guess that could only mean maybe this is real, uh, but I don't know what it is yet. So I can't talk about it until I know.
0: What I'm trying to say, which is tough, it's a tough thing to say to the scientific community, but I actually don't think the scientific method is the best way to go about understanding this because science is about objects out there that you can measure and replicate and test. And this is not that. This is about something out there that's interacting with us and that it involves consciousness and it involves human, the human interface. So it's both in here and out there at the same time. Mm -hmm. And how do you get that into a scientific experiment? Well, you can start. Granted, you can go, you can go a long ways. But at the end of the day, I think it's going to take something more than science to really crack Mm -hmm. this.
1: Yeah, that research bucket is going to have to go to more than just sort of microscopes and stuff. Jeff, I want to end this with a quick lightning round. What was the most miraculous experience you've ever heard about?
0: Probably Skinwalker Ranch.
1: And what is that for anyone who doesn't know?
0: There's an area in Utah that has been haunted for centuries, but was studied in the 1990s and early millennium by Robert Bigelow and a group of scientists, and all of whom basically got the crab haunted out of them by, you name it, by UFOs and immense manta rays and hairy creatures and portals in space and time. I mean, it was, you know, it's been called a kind of Disneyland of the paranormal. And I think it is. But what's so interesting is they, they didn't get any scientific evidence to speak of because the it, the thing, whatever these things were, completely avoided their sensors uh, or o- almost completely avoided. They did get a little evidence.
1: Wow. Okay. That's a good one. That was in the the show I watched, I think, on HBO uh, about UFOs. Anyway, all right, next question. Do you believe in ghosts?
0: So I believe people experience ghosts. Do I believe in ghosts the way they're imagined in the popular culture? No. But do I think that there's something behind that popular belief? Yes. I think there are spirits, and I think spirits interact with living human beings, but I think most of the popular notions are naive.
1: Okay. I like that answer. It's okay. What's been your favorite Halloween costume that you've ever worn?
0: <laughs> so I was chair of the Department of Religion for eight years and one Halloween I dressed up as the Black Spider-Man and I got a lot of looks. I sat in my office with these you know, students walking by all day and got a lot of laughter and a lot of looks. It was great.
1: The last thing I want to ask you in this lightning round is what is one thing all of our listeners can do as we continue to think about the paranormal and UFOs and everything else that might exist?
0: I would say talk to their families. Um, These stories exist everywhere and they get suppressed or forgotten because people are ashamed of them or people are scared to tell them. But just talking to people and asking questions will often uncover really extraordinary stories in one's own family. Hmm
1: and and do you recommend that they listen with the potential to believe um (laughs) i feel like you know again i think a lot of people might leave this and be like well that was weird i don't know like
0: i think belief is the wrong response to all of this when when you believe something you essentially shut down the question you land on an answer and i Mm. i often say i don't believe anything but i am convinced these things happen but again what they mean or the the mythical forms in which they appear. I no, I don't believe that. And and so it's that third space that, that between the believer and the debunker that I want. I guess is my final message. Go to that third space. Do not be the debunker because they're just as certain as the believer, by the way. And do not go to the believer because again they've landed. Stay in the middle keep asking questions, take people seriously, and listen, just listen, shut up and listen. Um, and, And things will appear. I mean, stories will be told. And I don't see how we can stay the same if we really listen to those stories.
1: I love that. And I I started this by saying I'm somewhere in the middle. So I'm glad to know I'm in the right spot. Thank you for coming on the show. This has been really fascinating, really interesting. Where can everyone find more about you?
0: You can just, you know, it's terrible to say, but you can just go to Amazon. Uh, The books are all there, but I do have my own website. It's jeffreyjcripal.com but there, I don't sell anything, Britt. It's just, it's a, it's a nerdy website about all my books and what I actually think. But if you really want to know, that's, that's where you'd go
1: yes and and he does have a number of books and a number of published writings and research and so i do recommend everyone go there buy a book uh there's a lot to explore we barely scratched the surface today hopefully we'll have you back again sometime and um if anyone else out there has something to say about it we'd love for you to leave us a review or a virtual high five by rating and reviewing the show on apple Podcasts or wherever you get your show ask us questions send us thoughts and comments let us know if you've seen or heard anything in your recent history. Um, other than that, have a great Halloween season for those of you celebrating it, and we will see you next time. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Brit Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit and Co. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Allie Ives and Allie Perry with additional production and sound design by Mark Lemerjay-Z and Aaron Peterson.